Well, if you have your copy of Scripture, go ahead and turn to Luke chapter 22 this evening. And we are looking at one of the gospel records of the Lord Jesus celebrating the Passover and then instituting the supper with his disciples on the night in which he was betrayed. And um, I want us to look this evening at Luke 22, beginning in verse 14. And I'd like for us to read down verse 34 for the sake of context. Luke 14, Luke 22, 14 through 34. And now Luke, having told us that Jesus has sent his disciples to prepare uh, the, the upper room and to make things ready so that he can celebrate Passover with them. And um, I have a, a sense that Jesus actually did preparation in advance of sending them and that this was not a sort of divine, uh, prophetic uh, moment of instruction from Jesus, but that he had already in advance prepared this and sent them then to prepare it. And Luke now says in verse 14, And when the hour came, he reclined at table, and the apostles with him, and he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. Suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of this vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. But behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined. But woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And they began to question one another which of them it could be who was going to do this. A dispute also arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded the greatest. And he said to them, The kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors, but not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest, and the leader as one who serves. For who is greater, one who reclines at the table or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at the table, but I am among you as the one who serves? You are those who have stayed with me in my trials, and I assign to you, as my Father assigned to me, a kingdom, that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom, and sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you, and in the Greek it's actually you all, that he might sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you singular, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned to me again, strengthen your brothers. Peter said to him, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God endures forever. Well, I wonder what experiences you all have had when you've been invited to dinner parties. I I think I've experienced the entire gambit of experiences you can have at dinner parties, everything from 
uh, leaving edified, having had a joyful and edifying time, and you're driving home with your spouse or your family saying, wasn't that wonderful? I have also had the experience of being at dinner parties where it's incredibly tense, and driving home, you're talking about how tense it was and how much you wish you hadn't gone. I have also been at dinner parties where it's obvious that either one throwing the dinner party or someone there doesn't really want to be there, and they sort of make that obvious with their body language and with their their detraction from, from the people at the dinner party. And I have also been at dinner parties, and maybe I've been this person, who has so dominated the conversations that they want everyone to know what they have to say and to listen to what they have to say at the dinner party. Now, I mention that because there are all those diverse experiences. And here, as Jesus is celebrating the Last Supper, it's the last time he'll have the Passover, it is the last Passover, and it may be the last meal Jesus has before he's crucified. We don't know. And as he is coming into the upper room to have, uh, to, to have that glorious celebration of what God had done so long before for ancient Israel and bringing them out from Egypt and in celebrating the Passover supper with his disciples, um, all of those things are happening at the same time at this dinner party. There is edification and joy. There is um, evidently one who doesn't want to be there, who's going to betray the master. And there are the disciples arguing among themselves about who is the greatest. And I often wonder, and Luke actually gives us clear insight into this, what Jesus was thinking, how Jesus was experiencing the last Passover and the first Lord's Supper that he was instituting on his way to the cross. Because the inner life of Christ is so seldom spoken about in the church, and yet is so incredibly important for us to come to understand the heart of Christ if we want to understand who he is for us and how he deals with us. Um, A Scottish Presbyterian theologian of the 20th century named R.A. Finlayson wrote a really sweet little book called The Cross in the Experience of Our Lord. And tonight I want us to look at the the supper in the experience of our Lord. What What is Jesus experiencing as he brings his disciples into this place. And I want us to see five things. First, I want us to consider his earnest desire. Then I want us to consider his thankfulness. Third, I want us to consider his conscious awareness of his betrayer. Fourth, his loving care for his disciples. And fifth, his his eagerness to expose the hearts of his people. We'll notice that Luke tells us there in verse 14, when the hour came, this is, this is, Jesus is our. He knows that he is going to the cross. He knows that what he came into the world to do was upon him. Uh, Jesus had spoken throughout the Gospels and at different times had said, this is not my hour, this is your hour. But now he knows that the hour has come. He knows what he's come to do. He is going forward with resolution and he is reclining at the the table and the apostles are with him. There is no sense that Jesus is hurried or anxious at this point. Um, His soul will be weighed down with grief. He will sweat great drops of blood in the garden as he considers what it will cost to redeem sinners like you and me. But at this point, entering in, 
He is reclining with his disciples. He is longing to be with them. He would not want to be anywhere else than at this table. Um, Notice that Luke tells us, and only Luke tells us this in verse 15, that Jesus said to the disciples, I have earnestly desired. In the Greek, it's almost a doubling of words to express this intense longing that Jesus has to have this meal with his closest companions. Now, there, there are several reasons for that. Jesus was accustomed to celebrating the Passover. He was in a home and in a family that went up to the temple every year. We know that because he went when he was 12 and, and he celebrated the Passover. He was eager to do what God had given his people. Remember, there were many generations of Israel that forgot to celebrate the Passover, that didn't want to celebrate it. Jesus was not among them. He was eager to do what was pleasing to God, and he was eager to celebrate this ancient meal that reflected what God had done for his people when he brought them out of Egypt with a strong arm and an outstretched hand. Um, He is first and foremost eager from a God consciousness. Yes, Jesus is God. But Jesus was truly and fully man. And as a man, he was eager to do what was pleasing to God. He was eager to do what God had commanded. And God had set this meal apart in a very special way in the Old Covenant. Um, There is much reason to believe that Jesus would have sung the Hillel with his disciples in the upper room, Psalm 113 to 118, that he would have sung those psalms that the saints would have sung as they went up toward the temple to celebrate the the Passover. And, And yet he would have been conscious, wouldn't he, that he is the Passover lamb. He was conscious that he was the one who would come to fulfill what that supper pointed to. Um, I think he was also eager because he loved the fellowship of his disciples. You get another inlet into that in the Garden of Gethsemane when um, he says to them, could you not watch with me for an hour? He, He needed their companionship. He needed their support. He didn't get it. He was left to go out into the no-man's land alone. Um, And yet there is an earnest desire in the heart of the Savior to celebrate the Passover and to have this fellowship with his disciples. There is also, I believe, an earnest desire in the heart of Jesus to, to institute the new covenant meal. He understands that with the Passover, that was a bloody sacrifice. He understood what the blood pointed to. He understood that it would be his blood that would be shed. He understood as he institutes a second meal. There are two cups. There are two meals that are happening at this table. This is the last Passover, and this is the institution of the the Lord's Supper, the new covenant sacrament. And, And the new covenant meal will not be bloody. Jesus is eager to institute something new and better. He's he's eager to show his disciples something about the new covenant that he came to bring. He's, He's, with earnest desire, he is desiring to have this meal because he wants to teach them more about who he is and more about what is coming. Um, I think we don't want to lose a sense of the marvel of the inner life of Christ. With earnest 
desire. You know, we'll come to the table and just here shortly, and, and the same Savior who is now risen and reigning at the right hand of the Father will be present at his table, and he continues to eagerly desire to have this meal with his disciples by being present with them and feeding them. Um, you know, I do think sometimes we have misplaced notions of Christ that we think he's sort of reluctantly doing us good. That he, he's sort of, well, if you plead with him enough, then he'll really be kind to you. If, if, you, if you twist his arm, he'll come around to, to do you good. And this is the heart of Christ. You know, Thomas Goodwin has a book about Christ's heart open to sinners. That's, that's what's happening here. Christ is opening his heart to his disciples. Well, notice that no sooner has he said, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. Suffer, He says, I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Now, he may simply be talking about the replacement of the two meals. He may be saying, this is the last time we will eat the Passover. Or he may be saying, this Lord's Supper, the first Lord's Supper, will also be the last Lord's Supper I will eat because I will not eat again until uh, I come in the fullness of the kingdom when, when my people sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and we enjoy the wedding supper of the Lamb. And, and I think he probably has that in view. He's He's saying this meal is anticipating something greater, and I am desiring to have this because it is showing forth something, a a prospect that you will be brought into, and you and I and all of my people will enjoy in the fullness of the kingdom, in the consummation. And then the Lord Jesus goes through the process of teaching his disciples about the bread and the cup. But I secondly want us to notice as he does this, what's going on inside the heart of the Lord Jesus at this table. Notice verse 17. Luke tells us, and he took a cup, and when he had given thanks. Now, this is not, this is not the trite prayers that we often um, redundantly recite at our dinner tables. This is is a heart full of thanksgiving for what he is about to endure for your salvation. I want you to think about that. He is actually thanking God for the elements that point to the suffering and the agony that he is going to have to experience for our salvation. Um, That's remarkable. There is nothing about what Jesus does for us that is reluctant. There's nothing that he does for us that's half-hearted. There's nothing that he does begrudgingly to redeem us. He doesn't doesn't sort of groan his way through uh, what he came to do for us. He gives thanks. You know, there's this beautiful picture, isn't there, in, in Hebrews chapter 12, where the writer says that Christ, for the joy set before him. Think about this. For the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. What was the joy? It was to bring many sons to glory. Jesus could give thanks at that moment because he knew the outcome 
of the poured out cup and the broken bread. Um, More of the wonder of the heart of Christ for sinners like us. Um, Notice in the third place what's going on in the mind and heart of Jesus. There is a conscious awareness that his betrayer is at the table. Now, it's remarkable. Uh, Theologians will actually try to minimize this, and some will say, well, Judas was only there for the Passover, but then he left, and he didn't take the supper. But remember, we know that there's a basin and a towel, and we know what Jesus is going to do with that basin and towel, and he's going to wash even Judas' feet. So Judas is there in the room, and Jesus knows who his betrayer is going to be. Now, again, how does he know? Maybe by revelation, but certainly because he knew the scriptures. He knew Psalm 69 said that my familiar friend would lift up his heel against me. He knew knew what God had inspired in the old covenant. He knew that there would be a betrayer. He knew that David had a betrayer, and he is David's greater son. He He knows that he is going to be betrayed by a close friend. And I I wonder if Jesus at that table didn't sense something in Judas. The the man Christ Jesus in his human nature must have had an incredible sensory perception to be able to read people. Um, I imagine that he, he sensed something about Judas not really wanting to be there, something the other disciples didn't sense. The other disciples are asking, well, who is it? Is it me? that Judas had so deceived them that, that they thought when he left, he was going to do mercy ministry. That's what the Gospels tell us. But, but Jesus is not deceived. He knows. Um, and what hurt that must have been? You know, Michael Card has this really amazing way of putting this. He says, only a friend can betray a friend. A stranger has nothing to gain. Only a friend can betray a friend. A stranger has nothing to gain. Judas was one of his beloved companions. And, and, and to know that you're going to suffer the pain of betrayal and yet to serve, and even to serve one who's going to betray you. Sinclair Ferguson says, you know, most of us would probably say, we know what he's like, he's not welcome here. But Jesus bears long, even with one, of whom he said it would have been better for him that he wouldn't have been born. You know, there is more of the heart of Jesus at the table, more of the heart of Jesus, that he is even patient with one he knows is going to be reprobate and who's going to perish, who's going to do him great harm. Um... There is also, and this is amazing, there is loving care for his disciples. Isn't this amazing? All the things that Jesus is experiencing at the table. He he has a deep heart of love for his disciples. He's thinking about them. He he takes the bread and he breaks it. He knows that that's going to represent his body being broken apart in judgment. And, And he says, this is my body broken for you. This is, this, this cup is the new covenant in my blood shed for you. As often as you do this, do it in remembrance of me. He's thinking about them. He's not in any way whatsoever serving himself. 
He is just serving them. Um, you know, I often think uh, that I so little meditate on just to what extent Jesus went in serving. He served and served and served. He never stopped serving. You know, elsewhere in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus will talk about um, um, his people coming from north and south and east and west and sitting down together with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And, And he'll talk about the Son of Man serving his people, even in glory. The scriptures say that even in glory, he's going to serve his people. That's, that's remarkable. Remember, Peter says, Lord, you'll never serve me. And Jesus says, if I don't serve you, you have no part with me. If I don't serve you, you have no part with me. You are either served by Jesus or you do not get Jesus. You're either served by Jesus or you do not get the benefits of Jesus. He has a loving care for his disciples in the upper room. Well, Judas is not the only one uh, revealing his sinfulness at the table. There is now, notice, all the way down, um, no sooner have the disciples begin to question who's going to betray Jesus. Notice there's not a verse between verse 23 and 24. Don't miss this. Not a verse. They're questioning, who's going to do this? And and then they shift gears, who's the greatest? And they start arguing about who's the greatest. They do this recurrently in the Gospels, by the way. These are Jesus' chosen band, and they're arguing about who's going to be greater. And, And at the point when Jesus is serving to the nth degree and showing them what he came to do to ransom them from the power of death and hell, they're arguing about who's the greatest. Now, that means we can come to this table and we could come like Judas, um, indifferent to Christ. Um, We could come indifferent to the things that you're hearing right now and we could leave just like Judas. And many have come to the table in Christian churches. Many have sat at the table with Christ and have left just like Judas. Or we could come to the table and we could sit at the table and we could be distracted with each other and our own things and our ambitions and our desires and our interests. And, and the disciples do that. Isn't that amazing? At the first Lord's Supper, the apostolic band cares about themselves, not about the one who is putting himself on the table. R.A. Finlayson, in that little book I told you was so wonderful, says at the, at the first supper, Jesus, as it were, pushes aside the Passover lamb and puts himself on the table. He's put himself on the table, and they're interested in themselves, and they're in interest. And notice, what's, what is Jesus' response? What's going on in the heart of Jesus? He has a deep desire to expose the hearts of his people. He deals with them gently. Notice, he says, he says to them, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors, but not so for you. He says at every level of the kingdoms of this world, men and women dominate 
other men and women, but it will not be so among you. He deals gently to expose what's in their hearts. He tells them, you're going to get a kingdom. My Father is going to give you a kingdom. But it is not going to be like the kingdoms of this world. And your place in it is not going to be like the place that men and women and boys and girls seek after in this world. He's exposing what's in their hearts so that they would see their need for him. Um, Sinclair Ferguson says this, Jesus makes the supper a time of very gentle exposure of their frailties, their sins, their needs, because he knows that the supper tastes best to sinners. Isn't that interesting? He knows that the supper tastes best to sinners. Ferguson says, has that ever dawned on you? To whom does ordinary bread taste best, but to a hungry man? And so Jesus is saying the supper tastes best to people that know they're sinners. Uh, Phil Riken, striking a similar note, says, We remember Jesus himself, who is even now blessing us by his grace. We are called to remembrance. Jesus says, Remember me. Remember me. This is not a call for memorial service. It's called for us to remember who he is and what he's doing, what he's done, what we have in union with him. Riken says, we are called to remembrance because, listen to this, our Savior knows that we have worldly hearts. I have a worldly heart. You have a worldly heart. Our Savior knows that we have worldly hearts and treacherous memories. That's such a great quote. <laughs> worldly hearts and treacherous memories and that we stand in need of all these memorials to keep up the lively remembrance of his love. That's awesome, isn't it? You know, what's remarkable about Luke's account of the supper is what it reveals about what's going on in Christ's heart. And as the Lord Jesus invites us to the table this evening, um, we are coming to focus on him. We are not coming to look at bread and wine and just see bread and wine. We are coming to have our memories quickened in the knowledge of what he endured when his body was broken and his blood was shed for our sinful souls because we are so sinful and so worldly and because we're constantly forgetting and we're constantly turning in and what Jesus does at the supper, and this is the most beautiful thing, is he takes all of what he accomplishes at the cross and he throws it before your eyes. And, and accompanied by the preaching of the gospel, he says, remember me. Look at me. Focus on me. And the same loving Christ who was eager to eat that first supper with his disciples, is eager to eat this supper with you. And the same Christ who gave thanks for what he did continues to be thankful for the accomplishment of what he did. And the same Christ, and this is a frightening thought because this is a dangerous supper, the same Christ who was conscious that his betrayer was there knows each and every man and woman in this place 
and knows whether or not they have an indifferent heart like Judas, or whether they, as uh, Sinclair said, uh, are most hungry because they know they're most sinful. And the same Christ has the same caring love for us that he had for the disciples when he gave the elements and said, this is for you. I do this for you. And the same Christ who corrected them and exposed their hearts exposes our hearts at the supper. The same things that happen there happen here. And so I'd encourage you as we prepare to come to the table this evening that we would meditate on these things, that we would fix our mind on what was going on inside the heart of the Savior, knowing that the same Savior who is the same yesterday, today, and forever will be present at his table as we come to commune with him tonight. Let's turn to him in prayer. Father in heaven, we do pray that you would make us to know that Christ is the Lord of this supper. Lord Jesus, we pray that you would be present with us as we come to partake together. We pray that we would know more of your heart, not just here at the table, but in our daily lives, in our everyday events, in our homes, in our relationships. We pray, Lord Jesus, that we would see your uh, earnest heart to be with us and to fellowship and commune with us, that we would see your thankful heart for all that you did to suffer for us, that we would know that you are uh, the Christ who searches hearts, who knows what's in our hearts, and that we would see that you are the Christ who has a deep, loving concern for us, even to expose us when we need to be exposed. And so we pray that you would accomplish these things among us tonight as we come to this table. We thank you and praise you for what you accomplished for us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.